0: Welcome to Discovering the Old Testament, a series of podcasts exploring one of the primary sources of the Judeo Christian tradition. I'm your host, Dr. Sheldon Greaves. We are back with another spine tingling episode of Discovering the Old Testament. Welcome to Part 43, in which we will begin looking at the Minor Prophets, a collection of shorter prophetic works written at roughly the same time as the lengthier works of Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Jeremiah. It's easy to forget that religious figures do not just happen. They don't come out of nowhere. In each case, there is a context, a confluence of circumstances, ideas, and all-around discontent that drives both the timing and the content of religious change. Actually the same is true for political upheavals as well which I should acknowledge because really religion and politics are two sides of the same coin quite apart from their standing as discussion topics to avoid at family gatherings. The kind of context we are talking about here means that the prophetic voices were speaking on behalf of others and alongside others. With the Minor Prophets we see some of those other voices contributing to this particular conversation and debate. They give us a rare opportunity to flesh out the larger shape of the prophetic movement at Judaism's most desperate hour up to that time in her history. Incidentally, I should also mention, as stated in previous episodes, that these are known in biblical studies as the classical prophets. We call them this because a classic, apart from being something noteworthy, is something that so captures a certain spirit and reaches such a level of cultural excellence that it is considered definitive for that culture. There were lots of prophets throughout Old Testament history, but these are the ones that truly define the prophetic tradition. The earliest of the minor prophets, such as Amos and Hosea, operated in the shadow of the Assyrian military threat, as did Isaiah. It's also pretty clear that there is some crossover. We see bits of the minor prophets showing up in Isaiah and others it seems that even if we don't have lengthy examples of their work they had considerable influence speaking of the assyrians amos and his prophetic style introduces us to something that was fairly new for its time and that was directing his prophecies to the entire people up to now when some pesky prophet would show up the prophecy was aimed squarely at the guy running the show Think of Nathan's castigations of King David, for instance. Well, what accounts for this change? Ironically, it may be an Assyrian thing. Prior to the period of military expansion that frames the early classical prophets, the Assyrian Empire was in a quiet period, not doing a whole lot, arguably in a state of decline. Then an opportunistic general assassinated the ruling king, took the throne, and things changed in a hurry. This was Tiglath-Pileser III, who was one of Assyria's most dynamic, ruthless, and successful military leaders, who reigned from 745 to 727 BCE. He introduced a new wrinkle to the conduct of Assyrian conquest, which was to hold entire peoples accountable for the decisions made by their leadership. If a king over a city rebelled, the entire population was punished when the revolt was put down. This also is where we start seeing the signature Assyrian policy of deporting and forcibly relocating entire populations of conquered peoples. The book of Amos is probably the best place to start, since he is generally regarded as among the first of the minor prophets. While the book tells us a lot about the words of Amos and reports of his words, we don't get much information about the prophet himself. What we do learn is that he was not a professional prophet like the prophetic pundits that infested the royal courts. He was a herdsman who also tended sycamore figs. His prophetic calling was like those of so many other Old Testament prophets. Yahweh shows up and basically made him an offer he couldn't refuse. What's more, Amos was from Judah, but went into the North Kingdom, taking his unflattering message to the national shrine at Bethel. And here we have an interesting incident. Amos is preaching that the king will die and that the North Kingdom will be destroyed, So the high priest of Bethel, Amaziah, decides to have a few words with this upstart. He tells Amos to go back and make his money prophesying in Judah, back where he came from. But Amos replies that he is not a professional prophet. He is here because God himself took him from behind his herd and told him to prophesy the destruction of the north kingdom and the exile of her people. What is interesting is that Amaziah isn't exactly mollified by this, but he does not challenge Amos' claim that he is speaking for God. In the first two chapters, we see how Amos sets up his audience to give his message maximum effect. Chapter 1 begins with a series of curses and oracles against the traditional enemies of Israel, describing in salacious detail what happened or will happen to each one. Damascus, Gaza, Tyre, the Ammonites, Edomites, and Moabites, all are going to get clobbered with fire and death and exile. At this point, his audience is probably feeling pretty smug, since bad news for your enemy is probably good news for you. Since the Edomites and Moabites were particularly despised... We sense that Amos is ramping up the emotional tension before he springs his rhetorical trap. His list of hapless enemies is proceeding according to magnitudes of loathing. But Amos then, in chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, delivers an oracle against Judah. Wait a second, his listeners are thinking. Okay, we've had our differences with Judah, and they tend to be jerks, but they're still extended family, right? While his listeners are still trying to make sense of that, Amos delivers his power punch. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Israel, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, and they trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth, and push the afflicted out of the way. Father and son go in to the same girl, so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge, and in the house of their God they drink wine bought with fines they imposed. And then... Just to drive the point home still further, Amos reminds Israel of all the trouble and miraculous favor they received at the hand of God by being led out of Egypt, and God's clearing out of the inhabitants of the land to make room for them. Amos is a prophet who takes no prisoners. There is a double message here. Amos not only reminds the people that God has been their protector in the past, He flat out declares that the days of that protection are gone. Israel cannot any longer rely on this kind of support, and they will fall as a result. Why? Amos' answer is twofold. First, and perhaps the most blistering critique, is the lack of justice among Israel the system has been rigged to prevent the powerful and the elite from facing any accountability for their abuse of the poor and the vulnerable income inequality was rampant and growing worse like his contemporary isaiah amos is ready to throw out the whole cultic apparatus as useless in the face of an unjust society fix that he says, because right now God couldn't care less about the feasts, festivals, sacrifices, and so on. Self-indulgent luxury was the mark of the doomed. We read in chapter 6. Alas for those who lie on beds of ivory, and lounge on their couches, and eat lambs from the flock, and calves from the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp, and like David, improvise on instruments of music, who drink wine from bowls, and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore they shall now be the first to go into exile, and the revelry of the loungers shall pass away. The second reason is idolatry, a reason echoed by the Deuteronomistic history but of intermittent occurrence in the prophets. Amos also cites violation of more general commandments among the many sins of the north. But Amos also introduces a surprising and frankly quite radical notion that we also see in other classical prophets, and that is the idea of God as the moral guide for all nations. His universalism claims that God is concerned for the welfare of all nations, not just those of Israel and Judah. In fact, in an extraordinary passage in chapter 9, near the end of the book, we find, Are you not like the Ethiopians to me, O people of Israel? says the Lord. Did I not bring Israel up from the land of Egypt, and the Philistines from Kaphtor, and the Arameans from Kir? In other words, God acknowledges that he has a special relationship with Israel, but he also points out that they are not the only nations whom he has led from one land to greener pastures, so to speak. This is pretty remarkable, since it was precisely the leading of Israel out of Egypt that was, and still is, considered the defining event in Jewish history. That said... Amos isn't about to let Israel off the hook. to turn our attention now to the prophet Hosea, who began preaching around 745, the beginning of Tiglath-Pileser III's rule, and ended in 722, when the northern capital of Samaria fell to Assyrian siege, effectively ending the North Kingdom. We have fourteen chapters in this book, again very brief. This is all the more frustrating for scholars, because Hosea is the only example we have of a truly northern prophet. Unlike Amos and other classical prophets, Hosea is a product of the North, through and through. Hosea's message is very much like that of Amos. He points to the oppression of the poor and a lack of social justice in the land as cause for alarm. He also, like Amos, makes reference to flagrantly broken commandments. Chapter 4 of Hosea begins a series of oracles against the people. Hear the word of the Lord, O people of Israel, for the Lord has an indictment against the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or loyalty, and no knowledge of God in the land. Swearing, lying, and murder, and stealing and adultery break out. Bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore the land mourns, and all who live in it languish, together with the wild animals and the birds of the air. Even the fish of the sea are perishing. Notice what Hosea is doing here. He mentions lack of faithfulness and knowledge of God, but then mentions swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and adultery. In other words, we get a pared-down encapsulation of the Ten Commandments. Those are the commandments that the people continue to violate. We see this in a couple of other places. Amos does this as well. But Hosea also brings a new accusation, which is a lack of the knowledge of God. This becomes one of the major themes in first Isaiah, where he claims that Judah's greatest weakness is a lack of understanding, and then later looks for a day when, quote, knowledge of the Lord covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. Close quote. What does Hosea mean by knowledge of God exactly? For Hosea it is not technical knowledge or theology, but a matter of relationships. In this case, those relationships are in tatters. Hosea relates the story of his very painful marriage to a woman who was unfaithful to him on several occasions. This tale of a marriage covenant made and broken by tawdry affairs with other men informs Hosea's meditations on the bonds of love, and how the breaking of those bonds transfers to the larger issues of covenant for which Israel was responsible. Through it all there is the counter-theme of compassion on the part of God who is willing, up to a point, to receive his own back. Hosea's marriage has been a matter of speculation. Did he really marry a prostitute? He ascribes this fateful match to God's command, which raises some theological problems. Hosea also names his three children by this marriage Jezreel to commemorate a famous battle against the Canaanites. The other two children's names translate as Not Pitied and Not My People to indicate the ultimate dismantling of the covenant between God and Israel. This may seem like an extreme way to get one's point across, but in the classical prophets we see the use of some pretty extreme actions used by prophets to make their points. Isaiah goes naked for three years to emphasize the coming humiliation and exile. God commands Ezekiel to lie on his side for 390 days, one day for each year of the people's iniquity. It seems more likely, however, that this was a marriage gone very, very wrong, and Hosea took this personal pain and employed it to explain the mind of a compassionate God pushed to the limits by an unfaithful covenant people. Hosea's collection of prophetic work ends with an oracle of hope, another theme that, if anything, grows stronger as the classical prophetic tradition continues. In spite of the soul-melting, stomach-churning stupidity, vanity, and general thick-headedness of the Israelites, God retains love for them. The compassion remains. Just as a betrayed husband might still hold out hope that his beloved will return to him, so God cannot quit his people. Chapters 11, verses 8 and 9 How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God, and no mortal, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. This, of course, did not rule out the possibility of some serious chastisement and misfortune in the hope that Israel would return to her senses. Hosea's ministry gave him the opportunity to see one king of Israel after another discard covenantal obligations not just against God, but shifting their alliances and obligations with respect to the might of Assyria. The Israelites were prone to revolt, goaded both by small neighboring kingdoms and by Egypt, who used the smaller kingdoms as pawns to harass and tie up the Assyrian military in putting down the almost constant rebellions in her extremities. The classical prophets in general had little use for the absurd notion that their relatively small kingdoms could seriously challenge Assyria, preaching instead that if they would restore the covenant and take seriously their obligations to the weak and vulnerable among them, that God would step up and protect them as He had in the past. Alas, it was not to be! Of all the classical prophets, only Jeremiah really gives us the inside view of the anguish and horror the prophets must have felt as they watched, helplessly, while events overtook their people and their kingdoms. On one level, even though the general prophetic predictions came true, the prophetic tradition failed to save Judah and Israel. But as we mentioned near the beginning of this series, the Old Testament is a record of that failure, inviting the reader to examine the faults and missteps that led to disaster. Join us next time as we continue to explore the minor prophets and their struggles to save their people. Discovering the Old Testament is supported by the donations of our listeners. To make a donation, visit our website at lafkospress.com. That's L-A-F-K-O-S-Press.com. Discovering the Old Testament is a production of Lafkos Press of San Jose, California. Join us again next time as we continue our journey through the mysterious and exotic world of the Old Testament.